0: Welcome to the Wings Over New Zealand show with Dave Homewood. New Zealand Show. I'm your host, Dave Homewood. In this episode, we're talking with Brian Farrell of Cambridge. Brian had a long career in the RNZAF and then civil aviation, but a special note, he was the first Royal New Zealand Air Force helicopter crewman.
1: Hi my name is Brian Thomas Farrell, um, Flight Sergeant, Serial Number 78159, RNZAF. I was born in Whangarei, 29th of June, nineteen thirty eight. Did you grow up in Whangarei? up in northland? Yes, I did. Well, schooling up to form one in Whangarei, and then I was sent to uh, Wesley College until uh, up to form five. I left uh, Wesley College in at the end of nineteen fifty four, and worked as a a, a survey as changeman in Wangarei for 1955 before joining the Air Force on the 6th of January 1956 at Hobsonville. Right. Had you always had a bit of an interest in aviation? Yes, I've always always had an interest in aviation. My brother at that time uh, was in the Air Force. He had joined uh, during the Second World War, and uh, he was a uh, sergeant instructor at boys' school. He yeah, was an engine trade. So I used to go for holidays in the early 50s down there and stay with him. And uh, after sitting in a hangar full of mosquitoes in 1953 and playing around with them, I was morally hooked on aviation. Is that a woodbine? That's yes, at Woodburn. They were in storage there waiting um, disposal. Right. It's the old safe hangar. Oh yes, yep.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: So, the process
0: of joining up, was it fairly easy to get into the Air Force at that time? Or? Uh,
1: no, it wasn't. It was quite difficult actually. Um, there was still compulsory military training going on, because I was too young for that. Um, I attempted to join the air force in 1954 as a boy entrant but uh, i'd gone deaf and money when i was 10 years old and they wouldn't let me in on medical reasons so i in 1955 when i was a chainman i applied to join as a regular and they accepted me without any trouble there okay And I uh, joined up as an AC2 aircraft assistant UT in number one TDS. And uh, I took my first assistance course with the last group of CMTs that came through, and that was a three month course on airframes. Okay. After the uh the airframe course was completed, I was posted to Ohakia and I was employed in ASF at Ohakia under Bill Brady, who I later lately or later found out that he was a, um, he was a relative of mine. Okay. And my first job was taking panels off a a Vampire for inspection and uh, it was a very interesting job there because we had such a variety of aircraft. We had the Vampires, of course, we had the Harbard, the um, Grumman Avenger which was used for target towing duties and also we had uh, Mustangs, P-51s used for target towing and also just for general I think flight experience for some of the ex-TAF people yep. and of course then there was the um, de Havilland Devons so it was quite a mix of aircraft.
0: Were there Dakotas there too at that time?
1: Uh, I'm sorry yeah I forgot about the Dakotas, yes we, we had Dakotas as well, they had the nz 535513553 yeah, one was the Queens, Dakota, yeah. and um, the other one was just a, just a general hack.
0: Mm. And you just sort of just missed the mosquito period then, they have just gone? Oh
1: yes, yeah. yes unfortunately, but I, I still hit on the Mustang and the um, Avenger. Yeah. The Avenger was very like a big tank, it was quite good. So after spending the rest of nineteen fifty-six with ASF, I was posted down to Woodburn on a mechanics course, and that at that time the mechanics course was, I think it was nine months. It was the fitter's course later on. I think it was a year. Uh, so I was still. Airframe um, then, and we went through that course. Um, during that time, I I joined the um, the Marlborough Aero Club and learnt to started to learn to um, glide, okay. and I actually went solo before just before I was posted back to Ohakia again on seventy five Squadron. Now, seventy-five squadron was vampires in those days. Okay. And uh, it was first line operation. Uh, getting them ready every day, refueling, doing the basic maintenance, etc. At that time, they actually had a film made. A national Film Unit came and made a film called Jet Oh yes, yeah, I know the film. Yeah. And uh, I starred very briefly in that for around about ten seconds. Um, tying one of the pilots in, right. Uh, and uh, it, it was quite quite an experience. And of course, that was the year that uh, the Air Force had its 25th birthday. Yep. And it was quite exciting to have the Americans come down with their B-47 bomber, RB-66 Super Sabres breaking the sound barrier. It was it was quite an exciting year. I okay, Yeah. Then, in 1959, I was posted to, once again, 75 Squadron, which had changed from Vampires through to Canberras, up in Tanga, in Singapore, and this was the first time I'd ever been out in New Zealand. We flew up by Hastings, a real rumbly-grumbly old thing. Took three days, you believe it or not, to get to Singapore. First day we went to Ipswich in Australia. Then the next day we went to Darwin, and the final the final day through to Changi. From there off, we were just bussed across to Tanga. and we were um, we were our accommodation was in the old um, RAF barracks. It was pre-war. At Tanga our Canberras were Canberra B2s and they were actually leased from the RAF for the period that we were up there. It was quite an interesting time working up there. We we just worked in blue shorts and sandals the poor old RAF people still had to wear uh, khaki top, Bombay bloomers, long socks and shoes, and also a beret while they were working. And uh, they were quite envious of us, uh, of us um, having the freedom. Mind you, it was it was hot. Yeah. I spent half of my 18 months up there uh, on the line, and the second half. In ASF where we um, serviced the Canberras and uh, part of that time I was also in the tyre bay doing all the uh, the Canberra tyres for the squadron.
0: How did the Canberra uh, compare with maintaining the Vampire?
1: Was it quite a different beast? It was a utterly different beast. It was more modern. The vampire was, uh, everything was very confined, crammed. Um, mind you, working inside a, a Canberra on the tarmac in the thirty degrees heat was really something you could only do for about ten or fifteen minutes at a time. So um, it was it was quite different, but at least you had more room to move around. In. And while I was up there, I joined the uh, Royal Singapore Uh, aero club and while the rest of our um, squadron lads went around buying big flash cars to bring home to New Zealand I um, spent all my money getting myself a private pilot license and this was to stand me in good stead in my later life so on return from uh, Singapore at the end of 19 then 1960, I was posted more or less straight away onto a fitters course. Okay. Back down at Woodburn again, and at this time it there was a it was a year course, and um, just well, that was the time that the Mustangs were all flown into Woodburn and cut up. Right outside our classroom window, it was a pitiful sight to see. Oh bad. Um, and in after my fitters course, I was uh, posted to one uh, RD where we were resparing the Bristol freighters. Oh yeah. yeah. And uh, also, I was involved in um, pneumatic overhaul as well. While we were there I met a a very nice girl on the airfield um, who was over doing some relief teaching at Renwick and when she went north again back to her home in Wellington I was able to get an exchange posting with one of the lads through to a and um, from Ahakea, um I was offered uh, the opportunity to go to America training on the Iroquois aircraft or Iroquois helicopters that were that had just been purchased by the, the government. So in 1960 i was on a c-130 through to honolulu moffett field washington dc and then down to newport news and in uh, north carolina
0: right
1: where we went we were the small group of us um, went to the United States Army Transportation School at Fort Eustis, Virginia. We were there for three months uh, learning about the Iroquois from um, instructors that had been on duty in Vietnam's advisors and they were, they were very very good. And, and this is learning how to maintain how to maintain Iroquois. And you being an airframes uh, mechanic, mm. you've... You, you well, oh, I'm sorry, I missed out a little bit of something before we went. All right. we, the, the group that was assigned to helicopters there were two groups. There was the Bell 47 group, which went to Fort Worth. Um, and then there was the Iroquois group, which went to Fort Eustis. We both went back to Woodburn for three months cross-training. So I was cross-trained to engines, the engine people were cross-trained to airframes, and this was the first time this had really been done. Right. And by that time I'd reached the, the dizzy limits of being a corporal, and I was a corporal when I went across through to America. So when you
0: went to the States, and you said there was a small group that went to the Iroquois mm-hmm. um, training, were there various trades like did they send avionics guys
1: there as well or was it just no it was just their frames and engines there wasn't right. any there weren't any aviation uh, av- avionic people right. uh, there at all so at the end of our course over there um, we were picked up by c-130 again we flew down to Fort Worth and put three brand new uh, bell 47s. In the, uh, in the aircraft and flew back through to Fnuapai via Honolulu again. Was that an American C-130? No, it was our, our C-130. They were still yeah. pretty new then. Yeah, they would have been brand new, I guess. No, they, was, they came in about a year before. OK, OK. Yeah. We had the Orion's. Um, the, the Orion's were newer. Then uh, our job then was to we were posted immediately through to Hobsonville. Uh, on our return, so I had to shift from a here to a Hobsonville in a hurry at Christmas time. And we started in on uh, it wasn't three squadron there, it was called three BSS, th- three battlefield support squadron. Right. And once again, we had a miscellany of aircraft we had Osters, we had a Bristol freighter. Which was allocated to us, and uh, there were the, the um, uh, Bell 47s, which were taken back. They were assembled by the the Bell 47 team, yep. and they started training our pilots. In June 1966, we received our first Iroquois.
0: Okay.
1: And of course, our job was to race over there, assemble them, and get themselves get get flying. This we did that. It was it was much easier than we thought. So once the aircraft, uh, once once the training had started, um, of the air crew, they um, approached me to see if I'd be interested in becoming a crewman. They would like to have a flying spanner on board these things in case something went wrong right so i was uh, seconded you that's all you could say through to crewman duties so my duties also were my standard airframe engine helicopter duties plus now the the next thing the government wanted to do is to show these Iroquois off to New Zealand, so we did a New Zealand tour, the two helicopters, and we went right down through New Zealand, calling in at uh, all the different airports, uh, into some schools, et cetera, showing just waving the flag for the airports. It that was, that was quite an exciting trip, uh, especially um, I was flying over areas I've never flown before, and we were very, very very well received. Now,
0: now, just to take you back a step there, you said that you were seconded to become a helicopter crewman. Mm-hmm. But what you didn't mention is you were the first RNZF helicopter crewman, weren't you? That is correct, yeah. yes. So that must have been quite an interesting thing to start a, new, a whole new trade for the Air Force. Well,
1: it wasn't a trade as such at the time because there weren't any rules in New Zealand. For helicopter operations, right, and we had a an Australian pilot who who was um, Squadron Leader Robinson. He was the man who actually taught all the aircrew because the Australians had had experience uh, for a number of years with the uh, the earlier Iroquois. Uh, yep, yeah. and then we had a squadron leader Claydon RAF come through to teach us crewmen search and rescue techniques Okay. so we learned the RAF way of doing search and rescue and winching uh, which was quite at that time quite different to the American way and um, it was quite common during the week to be told get yourself ready get your wetsuit on we're going down to Lake Corita uh, and we're going to do some winching in Lake Corita or we're going out to the uh, out to the noises and we're going to do some um, deep water winching out there and uh, it, it was quite quite a welcome change to the normal routine you had breaks doing this that and the other. Once we had the Iroquois all going of course we were then slotted straight into the um the annual camps in February down at Waiuru where the army played their war games yes and then every February we would be down there under campus um, taking soldiers under slung loads um, and anything else that the army wanted to do, um, on a daily basis, and uh, working all hours, from pre-dawn till after dark. And this is where three squadron at that time they changed their name to three squadron when the Euroboys came. Yeah. This is where the the rank system really broke down, and the aircrew. And the ground crew and the crewmen all worked together as a as a wonderful team. Um, You could approach anyone. Right. It was absolutely excellent. Um, Like a breath of fresh air. Uh, We're also involved with this this uh, as as well as all the normal routine maintenance, back and overhaul, etc., that we did on the uh, Iroquois back at Hobsonville. Uh, They had a royal tour, came up with uh, Prince Charles, came out. And um, we had to look after Prince Charles all the way around South Island. When we got back to Wigram, um, we had bedded down for the night. And during the night, there was a horrible rumble. And um, they told us to get out of bed early, get to the helicopter. Grab some food on the way and we're off to a place called Anangahua. Right. Well, I didn't know where Anangahua was, but uh, I soon found out that it had the big, uh, big earthquake there. And our job um, was to uh, go and evacuate the families which were up the, the valley. Uh, and get them out of that area as quick as possible, as been the the big the river had been dammed by a a, a large slip, yeah. and they were scared that the water was going to build up behind the skip, break through, and inundate all the the farms just immediately below. So we had to go and um, talk these people into getting leaving their house, leaving all their um, their, their food and freezers and everything. They even tried to bring the freezers on board and we refused. But uh, even their dogs came on the plane yeah. and we we took them out. Uh, there was also a civilian helicopter pilot there in his little Bell 47. He was going around doing um, checking for damage. The following morning um, at breakfast time, we heard that that man had been killed. He had flown into um, Powerwise accidentally, and that was that was very sad. Because yeah. we The night before, we were just having great chats with him, etc. But he was up early the next morning and flown into Powerwise. There was only one civilian death, and that was a lady um, with a house. Um, the house collapsed on her. But um, we were there for... Three, four days, and the ground was just like a jelly all the time, but we just constantly constantly moving.. Wow. That must have been quite
0: something for the um, folk living out in the countryside to have a helicopter land on their farm because they wouldn't have seen them, <laughs>
1: would they yeah, no. it was uh, yeah. Yeah, some of them enjoyed it. Some of them were quite angry at having been shifted. But uh, if they'd seen what we had seen from the air, most houses were shakens Just they were just sitting on the ground. They've been shaken off their piles. Wow. In those days, all houses had piles. Yeah. Um, and and the, the lateral movement had just moved the piles over, and the house just sat down. Uh, everyone who had a chimney in the um, the front room in in the in the middle of a roof, those chimneys had all collapsed through the roofs.
0: Wow.
1: The people who had the chimneys on the outside of the house, um, the half of them, the chimney fell out and the other half the chimney fell in. Right. So um, it was quite interesting to, to see the actual damage. Um, the tanker drivers came uh, had to drive up through the west coast to provide us fuel. So that first night when we flew, we flew until we ran out of fuel, Okay. that's getting people out. Oh. The tanker drivers were absolutely unarvellous because they drove that night right from Wigram up through, uh, they came over one of the passes uh, west coast down through to uh, Reefton and then into Anangahua to give us fuel at dawn the next morning and they were, they were absolutely buggered. <laughs>
0: I guess that's a really good point because in those days there wouldn't have been uh, that many places in the South Island that would have had the um, necessary jet fuel. That's correct. Yeah, we
1: had we had strapped um, an extra. um, What was it? We had an extra forty-four gallon drum, two hundred liter drum, by the pylons. We'd strapped them in and strapped a pump in before we left for Wigram, so that gave us. A little bit longer, but jet engines do chew in the fuel through. Yeah, and uh, but we flew until we ran. We 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 used all that fuel up, and we just ran till we couldn't run any longer that night. And you just had the one helicopter on this operation at the time. Then the second day, another helicopter came up. Right. So there were two helicopters.
0: Was this the first um, RNZF helicopter rescue mission rescue operation? Um.
1: it very well, could have been. We did go out for searches out um, for um, maritime wrecks out in um, off the, off the Coromandel. But I have to have a look in my logbook to find out what the dates were. Right, right. And and there was, there were a couple of boats there that um, that sank, and we were looking for survivors. Okay. But um, yeah, the whole. Helicopter thing was um, it was quite amazing. Um, some of the things that our squadron did was well quite unique. Um, we there was a time there we went out to Great Barrier there and uh, and uh, did the lobster run. Okay. And the thing in the and the a helicopter would come back with a whole lot of lobsters crawling around inside, they all get numbered uh, with a, a little number on the back in, in white paint yep. and they'd be crawling around the hangar and they would be raffled off to everyone and I understand that in, uh, in the officer's mess uh, one of those um, lobsters actually went onto the bar live. <laughs> um but that's that's just a story I heard yeah but that that didn't last very long it was, it was stopped very quickly at the very
0: beginning of the helicopter operations, who were the crews um and how many pilots were okay. there who were the first people uh, involved
1: okay the, the first people involved uh, uh we as I said at the the chief instructor was a man called um, mr Robinson yeah it's squadron leader Robinson. And then, was he put,
0: posted in more or less? A, he, a, he was a,
1: posted in in f- from the Australian Air Force. He was attached to three squadron, yeah. and he was in charge of uh, instructing our, our air crew. Right. They had squadron leader Hubbard. Um, he was um, he he was the, the first person to actually. Uh, be taught by uh, squadron Leader Robinson. Okay. Then um we had um Bud Mills, pilot officer Mills. And then we had even had a wing commander there, Wing Commander Seagate Okay. Yeah, he, he was um he, he he learnt to fly the Iroquois. Um, he went on to become uh, Chief of air staff didn't that's he? That's right. Yeah. Yes, and a very nice gentleman, a real gentleman, yeah. that he was. And um, then George Oldfield. And yeah. George Oldfield actually ended up being the, um, the head of the RSA at oh, right. a, a later time, but unfortunately he, he died early. He, yeah. And he was another really, really nice guy. Yeah. Then um, the man Ken Wells. Now Ken uh, is still, I think, involved with civil aviation. Okay. In the helicopter, right? And a really nice man. And then um, Buttles, uh flying officer Butler. And these are all the people if in the nineteen sixty-six. um In the nineteen sixty-six scripts, they're the real originals. <laughs> yeah. And they, these are all pilots. These are
0: all pilots. And in a crew, was it the same as today, where there were two pilots and a crewman? Two, that that two
1: is crew. correct. Yeah. Yeah. It's two pilots and a crewman. Although, on some later on, um, when we went down through on what they call translands, through to do quick jobs at Wauru, there would be quite often just the pilot and the crewman. Yeah. Yeah. And which meant that the crewman actually got quite a bit of stick time. Right, it was uh, quite different. uh, Well,
0: that's a little interesting thing because they certainly wouldn't be doing that these days, I don't think. Mm.
1: No. For the
0: crewman to actually fly the helicopter.
1: (laughs) 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 No, it uh, it was one of the unique things of of those days where these things were allowed, and um, and actually, it, it, it I think it was it was a good thing because it gave. The crewman, um, another aspect of you know how difficult it is to fly these darn things. Yeah, there's nothing like a fixed wing, you you, you have to have you know, two good legs and two good arms. Um, whereas with a fixed wing, maybe you could do away with a leg.
0: So, so w- was there some sort of um, f- formal uh, training done for the crewman to, to, to get that level experience? Or, or uh, was it just? Um,
1: it was. It was just um, the pilot teaching, yeah. teaching the crewmen Well, this is what you do, and and uh, just hold it here for a while while I have have a look at the map and um, and that sort of thing. Right. But as far as the um, the rescue system was concerned, um, that was done in quite detail. it 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 was very very good. Yeah. Uh, the crewmen also. Um, did uh, winch operator duties um, at, at times and uh, we had the uh, an electric winch which on the whole was pretty good but it did have some faults and we used to practice um, on doing triangles on the um, picking up triangles with a uh, a grappling grappling hook yep. on the uh, airfield at Hobsonville okay. where you talk the aircraft uh, right around the circuit, you talk it down the approach, and you talk talk it right into the hover, and then adjust in the hover um, so that you can actually pick up the the uh, the triangle uh, with your hook and bring it up. Yep. And um, so that was a certain pattern you had to work out, and it had to be you you had to really think outside the square all the time as to what's going, what is happening, and what you want it to happen. And how much you want it to happen, right. especially when you're um, when there's a little bit of wind. And of course, the pilot would do exactly what you told. You'd, he'd be in the hover. You'd say, uh, "Okay, um, uh, okay, left, left one. Okay, hold it steady. Then, then a forward, two, one, steady." and he'd hold it there and in this way you'd actually get the hook right over the triangle and to, and then lift it up, Okay. hook up and lift up. Yeah. yeah. The more difficult one was doing the drums, there was a drum, um, I think it was around about a 12 gallon drum with a lead keel on it and a, um, a, 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 a four sided hoop on the top Yeah. and we used to throw that out over the Guadamata Harbour and then go through exactly the same process. So is this there's a person in the water and you're having to bring the, the hook up to it. But the trouble is those drums used to sail uh, in the downwash. Yep. So it was more difficult to, to get the, the helicopter um, squared away exactly. One day I went up with Ted Creelman and the Wasp, and he, we were doing drums. Yep. And I'd never used the wasp hoist before. It's a pneumatic hoist, and when you release the actuator, the hoist didn't stop. It went on another foot or so, and trying to hook the uh, the drum out of the water, you had to also anticipate where that hook was going to end up. Right, and. uh, Quite interesting. Interesting, yeah. 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 I guess it must have
0: been a lot easier to um, actually pull a person out of the water because they were oh, a bit more
1: cooperative. Yes. <laughs> well, as a crewman, you were normally in the water first, and you're you're going to pick a person up. So you were actually you were down. You pick the person up, put through the strop around him, yep. give the thumbs up, and away it went. Sometimes if you could do it in seconds, it, it, you got so good at it. Yeah.
0: yeah. Hmm. So who were the first other crewmen that were
1: with you? Uh, First, other crewmen we had um, Colonel Bruce. I forget what his first name was. He was a corporal. Yeah. Uh, we had uh, Dave Silver, We had Brian Wakelin. These are as they as they came along. Yeah. Um, we had oh Howard. Um, what's his first name? He was a crewman up in, in oh, there was a Howard and the other ones I can just remember at the moment anyhow. Okay, okay. Yeah, they're, they're the very first, first, first flush yeah. of crewmen as it were. Yeah. Um, uh, did you find that um,
0: as the days went by you were sort of developing the trade into something? or? or were you just following well, the RF?
1: Well, we didn't we didn't in the time I was crewing, there was no think that, no thought that it was going to be a separate trade. Right. Yes, we got a crewman brevet. They gave us a crewman bre- brevet. Um, but we still were multifunctional. You know, right. we, we just did everything else that we had to do um Dave silver was a crewman as well now Dave was an electrician yeah um Brian Wakeland, I can't remember what he was Colonel Bruce was in uh, engines um oh and we had another one there that was um, um Instruments as well. That was um Oh, forget his name. Sorry, yep. at the moment. That's right, that's right. Yeah. <laughs> so whereas, so
0: you guys would get off the aircraft after a flight and then you'd just go and start pulling an aircraft apart and doing maintenance on it. Yeah, right?
1: we have to do an after flight. Yeah. Yep. We did the, did the pre flight, we did the after flight each day. We, we had to get the aircraft ready. Had to also get it configured as to you know, what we were gonna do. Yeah. If it was wet winching we had to put a wet floor in. Um, if we were going on a long journey, we had to make sure the extra you know, fuel was on board, and um, and depending on uh, what sort of load we were carrying, as to whether there were going to be any seats in it or not, or, or how many seats, uh, is is the thing that we just we just did. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Mm. And of course refueling. We we did all the refueling as well. Yep. If I had a cent for every Roman gallon uh, that I've actually hand pumped into an Iroquois, I'd be a millionaire now. <laughs> it was amazing. Right. Yep. And we used to handle those uh, forty four gallon drums like well, I couldn't do it now. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> mm. Apart from that, uh I was then in 1970, I was posted through to 41 Squadron in Tanga. This is my second time in Singapore. I was married with uh, two children and one one expecting. Um, and on 41 Squadron, Bristol Freighters. Uh, at that time, um, 41 Squadron, that for that first year I was there, they were at uh, Changi. And uh, that was on, um, the old Jap- on the old Japanese strip. Um, we worked on PSP per- perforated steel plates, yep. plating, matting, yep. all the time. And our our hangar was just a sort of a little uh, concrete, um, sort of a concrete T shelter, where it just covered up the engines, covered up the the um, the cockpit and the rest of the aircraft was out in the open so we did all our maintenance that way right.
0: uh,
1: we during the um the the normal period there's the 41 squadron used to run the weekly um run up through to vietnam okay Yep used to go up on a Friday and come back on a Sunday night um so sort of a diplomatic run and also took um, army personnel up army personnel back and um, I I went on quite a few of those up through to Vietnam and back again and uh, we also did uh, it was a trip up to Kathmandu and we stayed in Kathmandu for 10 days uh, and we were relocating the Gurkhas. Okay. The Gurkhas had been flying in from Borneo, from Anduki by C-130 through to Changi um, and then they would be flying again by C-130 through to Kathmandu Airport. And then we and the Bristol freighter would take them up through and put them onto the the hill strips okay. um, up in the Himalayas and re- returning them back to their 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 folks. That, that must was, have been an interesting flight. It was uh, very interesting. I went on one of the trips through in the Pokra, up to Pokhara, and uh, yes, it was interesting. Uh, they they didn't normally take um, you know, passengers along. It, because they want to keep the weight down. Yeah. But uh, once again, we did all our our maintenance, etc. Kept the aircraft going. and I lived in a hotel there, um, and um, when I had a bit of spare time, I, I hired an old Russian motorcycle and uh, went around some of the the villages there, taking photographs, etc. And. Um, to me, it was quite a shock because they're still purely medieval up there. Right. They have no idea of sanitation or anything like that. Yeah. Um, very good experience. A lot of the boys bought um, uh, precious stones up there. Oh yeah. yeah. Uh, in the in the market, and uh, on return to Singapore, they go straight to the nearest Chinese jewellery and have the stones made up for their wives. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, that was. A very interesting experience, the the Kathmandu trip. I'll bet, yeah. Um, from the end of that first year, uh, Changi Airport was closed for development into what it is now, yep. a monstrous civilian airport, and we all transferred across through to Tanga. Okay. So it was, for me it was a sort of a homecoming. I'd been there 1959, 1960, and there I was in 1971, right, back there again. And Tanga, we um, established our um, our line where um, we had the B2s before the old the Canberras. Yep. and uh, carried on our our normal duties until. Let me see. And uh, until mid 1971, I think it was, I was asked to go up to, um, to Vietnam to Nine Squadron to pick their brains on how to operate Iroquois helicopters under combat conditions. Okay two of us went up there, Jerry Gaston. It was an injured man, yep. and myself. So we went up on one of the one of the Friday flights, and was um, we were shipped from Tenson Airfield through to um, Vung Tau by um, the Australian um, Air Force Caribou, yep. and then we. Uh, we stayed there for 10 days uh, doing, you know, watching, seeing how they do their maintenance. Uh, I went on one uh, rocketing flight as a, as a, a supplementary crewman. Yep. I got some photographs of that. Okay. And um, then, after taking all the photographs I could of all their, their different equipment and their shortcuts, yep. uh, we came back to. Um, Tanga and my job there was to set up the workshop okay. to receive some Iroquois from New Zealand to um, these, the, the, there were two Iroquois coming up and they were to support the um, the battalion which was located the New Zealand battalion which was located in Singapore at that time. Right. So we were back to th- to Iroquois again, but I was not. I, I didn't crew when I was in Singapore. Right. Um, they had their own crew, and then they bought they bought them up, and that yeah. um, was that. So it was quite very interesting being in Vietnam uh, during the war and seeing how stupid the whole thing was. Yeah. Um, there It was so political it was not funny. Yeah. Right. But was
0: there actually some sort of thought at that time that um, New Zealand might take their own Iroquois in there I, No, in? no, I
1: don't think so. Right. I don't think so. We um, we just used the Iroquois in Singapore for training the battalion. Yep. Um, they were in deep barracks over at Selitora, uh, Simba Sem- Wing, at right. Simba Wing Airfield and um then of course i, I was sent back home again right, <laughs> at right. the end of my two years um my my two years posting I was posted straight back through to three squadron okay yeah. and back to the Iroquois again, and then I did one last rescue as a helicopter crewman um that was when was that that was. February, 1974. Okay. An accident in the um, in the Hunua Ranges where a, a lady had gone off a, the edge of the edge of the road and tumbled down a very steep bank, and she was a, a very sick lady. She would had a hole punched through her forehead Ooh. by I think it might have been um, the rear vision mirror in a car, and I had to. Um, Put her into in a stretcher, and, and um, we were winched up and took her through to hospital. And that was on February of the 22nd. the last the last day I acted as a crewman. Okay, so just some uh, touching on that. Did did you guys have
0: to do some sort of first aid training course for paramedic type stuff as well? Oh, it was
1: not paramedic. No, it was no. first aid. Yeah, yeah, yeah true. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Just yeah, St John's first aid. Um, that was part of it, Yeah. but uh, no, paramedics definitely know. No. We were, t- we were there just to, to get people from point A to point B yeah. and of course the whole system has really um, developed from there. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah. It, it was d- very, very good to get in, in um, at, on the beginning and go through the development of helicopter operations and meet some absolutely wonderful people. And do things that you would never think you would ever do in your life. Yeah. Yeah. Does it amaze you that, you know, 45
0: years later, the same helicopters are still doing the same
1: work? No, it doesn't amaze me at all. They're just flying trucks. They're, they're really good. The Iroquois is built so simply and so strong. Okay, they've got their weak points, but um, they, they're rugged, um, simple um reliable and it's a pity if the Air Force actually gets rid of them because uh only get spares, they'll go on, they'll be like they could be like the Dakota. Yeah. They could just go on forever. Exactly, yeah. Mm. Yep. So back to three squadron. I was only at Three Squadron for around about nine months. Oh, well, by that time I was up to flight sergeant by the way. Yeah. I'm missed sergeant, a sergeant somewhere, <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I was um, posted across to the the Bristol Freighters at Whanuapai, um, uh, and I was put in charge of NCOIC maintenance there. Is that one squadron? Uh, every one squadron at Whanuapai, um, at and I carried on right through uh, we went through the transition uh, of um, the, the putting the, uh, the Bristol freighters into a storage, and then uh, accepting the the Andovers and right, yep. bringing the Andovers into service. Uh, we did one trip up to Fiji uh, with the Andovers, um, and th- that was quite interesting, Fiji was quite stable in those days, and um, then in 1977 I decided well there was a job being advertised in civil aviation for aircraft surveyors and they wanted people with um, aircraft inspection um, qualifications and um, I said, "Well, okay. I think we'll give it it a go." So I actually um, resigned from the air force and uh, joined the civil aviation department in um, in Auckland. Okay. And uh, that's another story.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Hmm. And so you ended up uh, inspecting aircraft all over the northern area. Oh,
1: yes. Yes. um it was uh, it was quite difficult actually to start with having come from 21 and a half years in the Air Force and expecting when you say something should be done it, it was normally done yeah. to civilianizing my mind that you don't you can't get civilians to do this you can always suggest you can cajole uh, but they don't like being told that you know you'll you'll have to have this done by so and so. Yeah, uh, that doesn't work. And it took me a, a good year to actually get out of the the air force mentality yeah. into the civilian men- mentality. And my first job was um, because I was, had been involved with. Um, the aviation sports club at, um, at Hobsonville for so many years and I'd been a, a, a pilot I'd also um, got my civilian um, engineer's license by then yeah. uh, they said well look there's a lot of people building airplanes out there would you like to go out and inspect them and, um, and clear them Okay. So I started in on that and this is on the home building side yep, yep. and once again I met some absolutely wonderful people and, um, and they were putting out products which were absolutely amazing okay so I did that job also the um, also clearing and inspecting general aviation aircraft to start with. Until uh, I was put on to um, in New Zealand and I was there to assist uh, one of the, the senior surveyors into looking at um, route checks and um, You, 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 route checks and also maintenance checks for Air New Zealand. So I got involved with Air New Zealand as well as doing all my other jobs. Yep, yep. I never actually stopped doing the, the inspection of the smaller aeroplanes, the amateur built aeroplanes. Right. And in 19, 1980, I, they sent me across to uh, Boeing in Seattle. To do a seven four seven course, right. because the DC ten was being phased out. Yep. And I only did two thirds of the seven four seven course, because then they sent me through to Rolls Royce and Derby to do the RB two eleven, because I was airframe and engine yeah. background. And um, then when the um, the course was over uh, at the end of 1980, I was back in New Zealand, and New Zealand were, in New Zealand was just receiving its first 747s. Okay. And I had to front up and give them all certificates of airworthiness. Yeah, right. Based on the uh, the training I'd had. Yeah. I also was responsible then for approving all the airframe and engine courses that Air New Zealand was actually doing yeah. uh, on base at um, Mangere and although everyone that I uh, everyone that went through those courses that I approved got themselves ratings on the aircraft yeah. I wasn't allowed to get a rating Okay. Because I hadn't actually worked on them, right. I I hadn't had been hands on. Yep. So um, it's one of the the vagaries of being in a different system. Right, right. And uh, from then on, I uh, I became a senior surveyor at that time. And um, later on, my boss. Uh, came up for promotion, and I applied for regional superintendent, and I was successful in becoming the um, the regional airworthiness superintendent for the northern region. Okay. So I had the I had uh, the main office in Auckland to run, and also two satellite offices. There was a satellite office at Ardmore and a satellite office at um, Hamilton. Yep. And uh, I carried on doing that until um, the government had a change of mind on how they're going to run government um, entities. And they decided to close down all regional offices yeah. and retreat to Fortress Wellington. Right. So that meant that the, the Wellington region office had to, s- to close. Or, uh, we had to close Auckland. Um, the Wellington regional office and the Christchurch regional, regional office had to close, yep. and everyone had to come back. And I thought, well, okay, that's that. Um, I don't really want to retire yet. Um, I'll see if they've got any jobs going for me down in Wellington. Yeah. So they may. They said, all right, then we'll create a job for you. Okay. And they said, they said, well, look, you've been very, very uh, involved with the um, sport and recreation area as well as airlines. Yep. We'll make you the sport and recreation coordinator for New Zealand. Right. So I put on a new hat and went down and, and, and uh, spent six years in Wellington ah, okay. as sports and recreation coordinator and uh, after that um, I decided well I've done my 40 years government service yep. I think it's time to have a little bit of a rest so uh, I, re- I retired and uh, shifted back up uh, through here to uh, Cambridge where I live now yep. and uh, I thought that was that it was it was that for about a year, and then the phone started ringing. And they said, "Well, could you come down to Wellington and help us write some rules?" And I thought, "Well, no, I don't really want to go down to Wellington again. Can I work from home here and go down maybe one week a month?" Yeah. And they agreed to that, and I was um, put in charge of writing the uh, the sport the um, sport aviation rules for New Zealand okay yep and um, i did that the rules gone through and been passed and i said well i'm sorry this is finally no i'm, I'm not coming back again yeah and they've left me in peace ever since <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> <laughs> and that's more or less it okay and so it's been quite a quite a few years involved in aviation and all, all sorts of aspects of it too, a yes. very interesting and yes. varied career. Yeah. Mm.
0: Uh, are you able to tell me any of those stories you told me the other day about the um, things that you guys got up to in the helicopters? Or?
1: Uh, well, well, I told you one, yep. uh, there's the, um, the business of the, uh, the old lobsters. Yeah, uh, the crayfish. Yeah,
0: yeah, and there's the one about the uh, hunting as well. Yes.
1: Well, we, we we had a very one of our COs. He was a real great guy, actually, um, but he wasn't one for really uh, abiding with all the rules. And um, one day we went down there in the helicopter, or, into into Wairu. We did a job at Wairu and on the way home we said well look um, yeah look let's go I'll go let's see if we can get ourselves a deer so um yes we went up the back of the Rangateki um and uh sure enough um they popped the old helicopter down and we saw the deer, he popped the helicopter down on the ridge there and got the old rifle out and popped the deer. And then we had to also get the deer on board. So away we went. He put me down on the, the winch. And now the pilot has got his own winch operating mechanism. Okay. Okay. I went down with a, with a strop, got the deer. Around its antlers, and he he winched it up, is uh, almost so he could see it by the helicopter. Yep. Then he went back to the ridge, and dropped it off, and did it. Came down, put the drop down, and pulled me up. Yep. And then uh, we manhandled, went back to the ridge again, manhandled the deer on board, and uh, he said, "Right, then, Well, look." Um, I've got a batch down at uh, Taupo. We'll go down there, and uh, here's the deal: I'll clean I'll clean the deer and skin it and everything like that. You do the lawns. <laughs> <laughs> <coughs> so that's what happened. <laughs> I went home with a a nice haunch of deer meat, yeah. and I I I did the lawns, and uh, he butchered the deer. And uh, and that's a that's a true story.
0: And when you got back to uh, Hobsonville with the, all this uh, deer meat and blood, that's all right.
1: that's too much blood.
0: Okay. No, yeah.
1: Don't, yeah. don't forget, it was butchered. wasn't butchered on the helicopter. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, no, puts, well, there are other people who know about it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> quite a few other people who know about it. On the same same time uh, we've also went up north to a friend of the CEO's place and he had his tractor bogged and we tried little, he said okay then right I will see if we can lift this tractor out and uh, it, we didn't actually succeed very well because the tractor was just a little bit too heavy yeah but, uh, so, but we landed and um, we had a lovely lunch with the people there and flew back home again okay there's another one um, oh very early on on the first year and this is this is quite legal this one um, a top pressing pilot uh, was flying back to Dargaville and at the Kuiper Harbour on north head on the north head of Kuiper Harbour is a an old lighthouse top dressing pilot decided, well, my gosh, you know that that looks nice there. Look, I'll just land the plane, and I'll just I'll go up there, and um, this is the Fletcher. Yeah. And um, well, I'll have a look at this place, and uh, then tootle off home. Yeah. But we didn't know that the sand was super soft, and when he landed, his landing run was around about the length of the airfra- e- aircraft. Yeah, Aircraft. And he was stuck, and he was in trouble. So um, he he called up, um, and the air force got to hear of it, and they said, "All right, well, we'll see what we can do, and we'll see if we can get your your, um, your plane out." Send the engineer out and um, to the plane, take off his propeller, and um, stow the propeller at the back of in, in the back compartment there was a little door on the side of the fu 24 it was the propeller back there and try and get some of the weight back a little bit and we'll see what we can do so i went out there this was squad leader hubbard i think it was and um and all and squad leader hubbard and which was his name he was co-pilot, co-pilot, co-pilot. Oh yeah, battle, battle. I was the crewman. We stripped the helicopter right out and made it as light as possible. We got a long strop with a loop on the bottom of it and they said they'd found a fence post um, over uh, on the sand dunes and on the fence post. So we went over there, landed, went down, had a look at it and we said, all right, then we'll look with the way the balance is at the moment, we should be able to put the strop down through the hopper, put the loop in the bottom, and put the fence post across the bottom of the hopper. And this is what we did. And um, the, uh, the end of the story was that the, the lift was quite successful. Right. And there was also a Herald photographer there. Ah,
0: right.
1: And I've got a photograph here. Of me looking out over the side, the helicopter going up, and Buttle's running like hell away from the fu twenty-four as the lift started. So there was only um, there was only the, the Hubbard was was doing the flying. Yep. Buttle's co-pilot was the man down there, making sure everything was there. Yep. And there was me over the over the side there, talking the lift up.
0: Right, right. Yeah. Great.
1: Yeah, it's a good photo. I've got it there. Yeah. Mm. Okay. So, there's the sorts of little things that, that happened.
0: Yeah, it must have been a really interesting squadron. Each day would have been a bit of a oh, different.
1: You never knew what was going to happen. <laughs> that was marvellous.
0: <laughs> what, what do you think was your most interesting rescue um, mission then?
1: Um. was not interesting. Um, we, we, we also had to go out and look for bodies at uh, P- off piha. Yeah. But uh, we were actually never successful in, in, in picking any bodies up. Uh, we, there was a couple of times there where we had to go out there and, and look over. Mainly Inangahua would have been the most interesting and varied one because we were dealing with all sorts of people. In a situation that we were quite unused to, um, as I said, the the ground just kept on shaking there. Then you didn't know whether the shake was going to get bigger or worse. Or uh, we were we were all um, uh, accommodated in the uh, Forest Service huts. Oh yeah, and uh, in my I had a hut, and I know. I pushed bolt on the door and when I woke up in the morning the door was open and, <laughs> and the, do- the bolt was still across so there must have been one hell of a job but I was so bloody tired uh, I, it, I didn't wake up but that door was open in the morning. Wow. And it was bolted from the inside. Uh, that would be the most satisfying and an and unusual one that we've done. And your um,
0: trip that you did right at the very beginning to to show off the new helicopters around the country. That must have been a really satisfying trip.
1: It was because we had new equipment. We knew how to put it together. Uh, Of course, if anything had really gone wrong, we would be really noses into books and everything like that. But it never really happened. Um, And uh, once again, we we met people, we flew we flew into Government House, took the Prime Minister up and gave him a little uh, Twitter around. Right. Um, who was that Holio? Uh, it was it was, it was the Holio, yeah. Yes. And uh, you, you know, we we did all, all the unusual things, things that it, there were lots and lots of firsts. How did the army take to using helicopters? They after? loved it. They loved it. Although. Um, we, uh, th- th- we, we. We did have one incident there where they were loading a pack howitzer onto a pallet and um, there's a 105, uh, 105 millimetre pack howitzer. Yeah. Normally it went in two pallets. This time, though, I think they tried to short circuit the system and they tried to put everything in one pallet. Yeah. And halfway between point A and point B, where we had to go, it suddenly got light. And um, what the problem was, the barrel had slid out and done a free fall and got itself buried into the ground. Now, how it's a barrel is not a very, very, Light thing okay. and the the army took about two days to find it. We gave them the track where we flew over, and yes, they found the hole, and they had to dig it out, <laughs> but it just shows you whatever you are given to lift, you have to take under you know um, the the idea of the fact that it has been packed properly mm. because you're you're in the helicopter there on the ground yeah. Yeah. and um, there were some loads that we used to carry what they used to do is they used to load the, the plane up and then the pilot would just quietly pull on the collective and then then find out whether the tail was going to lift first yeah. or the nose was going to lift first yeah. and they, you'd see that by where a cyclic was and if your cyclic was near the, it, its limits no, down goes the collector, throw something off, All right. you know, so that's that was a practical way of seeing whether you could actually do something. Because yep. when you're at altitude and when you're in the heat, the performance of a gas turbine engine, uh, it just doesn't like it, doesn't like heat and doesn't like altitude. So um, what you have power at sea level, you certainly have got power, that same power when you're up, up top. Yeah.
0: Did you do any um, firefighting bucket uh, stuff in those early days?
1: No, no, we didn't. We didn't have the equipment. That came along later on. Okay, but we didn't have it to start with. No. Okay. Mm.
0: Now the early, um, the earliest batch of Iroquois were D models, weren't they? And then they were later. Yes, UH1Ds. Yeah, That's and, then, right. and then they later got. Um,
1: they re- mo- modified. They are, yeah. the, the later ones were Hs, I think.
0: Yeah, and then the, the old ones they. Brought up to spec to, for the age. Yeah, well, it? they
1: they would have re-engined them to the old uh, L thirteen engine. Yeah. Was yeah. there much
0: difference in them uh, as for your point of view?
1: No, just a higher um, higher rating uh, shaft shaft rating. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Um, here we have the T fifty three L eleven in the original ones. Right. And the L thirteen L thirteen has been around for a long time. They used to use though in the. Um, Um, Chinook? The Chinooks, yeah. yeah two L13s in the Chinook. Right, right. Mm. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, but uh, once again they were very simple engines uh, as far as gas turbines were concerned and um, very, very little ever went wrong with them. Very little. Yeah. It was, as I said, they were a good truck. Very good truck.
0: <laughs> right. Um, <laughs> j- just uh, on the squadron was there much sort of squadron social activity and and um anything that stands out that was specifically 3 squadron or specifically 41 squadron or even 75 squadron in those
1: days no not really um we always seemed to be hard down at work um no th- most most of the guys have, if they wanted to get any light relief they went to their re- rel- you know, respective clubs to do that but we didn't have balls or anything like that. Yeah. Um, now we've got the Sea Squadron Association. Um, what we, we go down to the um, the meetings down there whenever they hold them. Right. Um, once again, it's, it's quite weird for us oldies. You see all these young kids that are just out of their bloomin' nappies, flying, <laughs> uh, crewing. Maintaining all that sort of thing—it's—it's two—it's two, almost two generations down now. Yeah,
0: yeah, yeah.
1: that's right. <laughs> it's quite <laughs> strange, isn't it? Like it it all, is strange.
0: All, all of the aircraft that the the Hercules and the the Arons and everything—they've all got that same thing now, haven't they? That's right.
1: That's it. Yeah. Yeah. Now the, the government of the day was very wise in what they did. And of course, since then, uh, it's just been the steady disintegration of the armed services.
0: And governments. And, uh, well,
1: (laughs) (laughs) yeah. Hmm.
0: Yeah, yeah, well, that's um, fascinating stuff. Hmm. Um, Well, the one sort of last question I was going to ask did you ever have any sort of interesting incidents or close calls or anything in the Iroquois?
1: There was only one with me, uh, with Iroquois. I uh, was doing underslung loads at Hobsonville with George. George Oldfield. That's right. Now that, this, this was fairly early on. Yeah. Um, that would have been around about yeah nineteen six. Yeah, about nineteen sixty eight. Um, yeah, we took off. We. We had a big under slung load of um, 44 gallon drums full of fuel, of water, and a big sling net, and we were doing a right hand circuit off 27, I think it was, and that took us not over the bomb dump, over round, over um, where the bridge is now. Oh yes, yeah. Uh, And then down over the um, the Sunderland's we had Sunderland's there all moored, and then in on over past the threshold and then back in. Now, on the downwind leg, we took off to the west, coming through, George had a partial power failure. Uh, There's a big sag in power, and uh, we're starting to descend. There's nothing we could do. And um, George said, "Well, hey Brian, we're in trouble. Uh, what's underneath us?" I said, "Sunderlands." He says, "I've got to get rid of this load." I said, "Wait for a second. Okay, do it now." And we dropped this thing, and it landed between two Sunderlands. <laughs> and uh, and he just—I didn't nothing. he heard nothing from him, and. He just quietly brought the aircraft down through and did a run on landing. Right. Now he got a, uh, a green endorsement for that. Right. Oh, yeah, good. For saving the aircraft and all that sort of thing. But that's about the only thing that's really happened. Um, there was one area where I was a little bit worried. I was on wet winching and we're out at the noises. Now, the noises are way out in the Hauraki Gulf. Yeah. And the, we, there was, they, they used to take a, a, a boat out from the uh, marine section. And that used to stand off around about a mile just to make sure that, you know, if, if everything went plonk, yeah. there would be someone there to rescue. Yeah. The 20 minute warning light came on for fuel. And they uh, uh, reached me down into the water and they winched up and they vanished. And I didn't know the 20 minute warning light had come on. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> and I was tossing around there and it was around about a, a metre and a half swell. And uh, the boat, the rescue boat was, I could see it every time I bobbed it at the top, it was way, way the hell over there. Wow. And um, I thought, "hmm, sharks, you know <laughs>
0: yeah.
1: nah I don't know, but what I did notice just in a little way away, it was a dead sheep. I thought, floating <laughs> <laughs> and I thought, "Oh my God, this bloody helicopter better come back soon, <laughs> and I just stayed out there and with my mind going into overdrive and They refueled, they came back, but I was in the water about three quarters of an hour. Wow. And um, I just had a a fluorescent red bone dome on in my wetsuit. Yep. And uh, that wasn't very nice. No. no. But uh, they told me later on, you know, why. And. uh, Wow. Yeah, that's just a little bit uncomfortable. (laughs) <laughs> you think they would have had time to winch you back out before they left but when a 20 minute warning light comes on and you're out way out and out there yeah you've got to go home you just don't risk it sort of thing. no you've got to go home yeah yeah
0: okay
1: it's like the warning light in your car once that warning light comes on you really do have to go to a petrol pump because how accurate is it true yeah <laughs> yeah true You you don't take the chance
0: yeah yeah. better to lose the crewman than the helicopter, I suppose.
1: Well, I would hope that everything turned to custard, that the boat way the hell over there would have seen my little fluorescent bobbing around, yeah. and come <laughs> over and get me. They didn't. Oh, okay. We used to actually winch down, and they they used to have the, uh, the those boats uh, for the. Um, for the Sunderlands. Yeah. Um, we used to practice on them, winching in and out of them at speed. They used to go flat out and we used to get winched down into them oh, right. and winched off them. Um, it's for practice. Wow that'd be awesome. It was awesome. We used to do all that sort of thing. I don't know whether they do it now wow. but you had to be able to winch down into onto the deck yeah. and the more speed they had actually the safer it was because the helicopter was, you had more control. Yeah, Yep. Yep. The only thing you had to do is make sure you didn't foul any of the, the mast and aerials and, yeah. and all that sort of thing. Yeah.
0: Mm. Man, that sounds like a thrill ride. People would pay to do that. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh, thank you very much, Brian. It's been a really uh, fascinating um, opportunity to talk to you about all this. Okay. Stuff. That's great. Cheers. That was the Wings Over New Zealand Show with Dave Homewood.